0: Father, thank you so much um, for the opportunity to gather together tonight. Um, it feels good and right to thank you for the folks working really hard in the kitchen that just fed us a really good meal, just to ask your blessing upon them. Thank you for the great conversations that I know were happening around tables as, as we broke bread together and um, the laughter and um, just helpful bonding talk. And uh, now, Father, we're we're turning to your word, and and um, this can be a, a topic that can have a lot of controversy around it and a lot of emotion. And so just cause us um, to be humble and contrite and to tremble at your word, uh, Father, where we might disagree, uh, to be charitable and gracious, uh, to be open, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and... Um, Teach us more about who you are as the creator of all that we see, and uh, thank you so much for these folks who've uh, come out here tonight. Uh, bless our time. Use it uh, to cause all of us to grow one step closer to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, <clears throat> so, last time we talked about uh, seven biblical truths about creation. Um, I'm going to just... I'm just gonna speak those out uh, quickly, briefly. Uh, Number one, God created the universe out of nothing. Uh, The Latin phrase for that is ex nihilo, uh, out of nothing. Uh, We saw, number two, that God created all things, both visible and invisible, both in the heavens and the earth. So we talked about heavenly realm and the earthly realm and the somewhat overlapping nature of those realms. We, uh, number three, that God created time, um, that he created succession of moments, uh, that God created by his word, God said and things came into existence out of nothing. Um, Read a great little bit of Danny Potter's writing, um, just uh, exulting in his creation by his word. Number five, that creation is a triune act. And along the way, we were looking at a number of texts uh, to support these things. Um, number six, that the universe that God created, he said multiple times what it was. Good. Yeah, it was good and very good. And number seven, that God created the universe to show His glory to display his glory. It wasn't something that he needed to do. It wasn't that he was lacking in any way, uh, but that he did it to bring himself glory. So that's where I ended uh, last week. And this week where I want to begin and what we want to talk about is um, views of creation. And so honestly, so a couple things. Uh, one, I don't I don't know how far we're going to get tonight. I I suppose I don't know that any week, so I I could probably say that every week. Um, Also, uh, I radically changed course uh, midday today and didn't have time to change your handout. Uh, So your handout isn't going to be completely accurate, so I apologize for that. But um, I'm deciding to just look at really three main views and not six. Uh, and yeah, so I'm I'm taking a little bit of a different tack than I was planning on taking even last week and then leading up to this week. Um, the other thing I want to, I want to be really honest about is, uh, you know, for all of us, there are probably certain things that we know more about than we know about other things, right? Pretty obvious in just all of life, and that certainly applies biblically and theologically, and a lot of times that's driven by what is your heart drawn to, what are you interested in, what really kind of tickles your intellectual fancy. Um, I feel fairly inadequate on discussions around views of creation because it's not something that's ever been hugely important to my theological system. Important, but not hugely important. So, you know, for example, I'm not I'm not the Ken Ham, right? Ken Ham clearly, a lot of you know who Ken Ham is and there's answers in Genesis and an entire ministry that, that has come out of that. Clearly, he has a far greater interest than I do in studying this portion of scripture. And so it's not, it's not, uh, it's not my life's work. Um, you know, even for example, so... Um, You know, there there are so many. Obviously, any theological topic, I I have whole sections, even in what my library is a fairly small library, and I have sections on just particular topics. And I have a number of books on a number of commentaries on Genesis, and a number of books on Genesis one to three. So one of them is like this book here, the Genesis Debate, and these are the three views that we're going to talk about tonight: the twenty-four hour view. Um, the day age view, or the normal day view, uh, others also call it, and then the framework view. And, and you can see, you know, there's people who worked really hard to create a, a fairly good-sized book um, detailing, and and this is, I, I love these, have you all ever heard of the, like, the uh, four views or the free, three views kinds of books? It's a, um, there's a whole, there's all kinds of topics that they, that they talk about, and So they'll have, they'll pick a few scholars that will represent a particular view. So they'll write that view, and then the other two will respond to what was written, and then they'll write theirs, and then the other two will respond to what they wrote, and then the the final one. And so you get to see, it's a really balanced way. Instead of just, I'm just gonna read, this is what I believe in. I think we should always be reading um, the best representation, because here's the, here's the problem in our culture, uh, especially if you watch the talking heads on the, uh, the common news station, 24-hour news stations, uh, they will get the worst, you know, like, here's your view. And you're like, you chose the worst team member that we've got. Like, why did you, I don't even want that guy on my team. And that's who you're choosing to represent what I believe. Um, right, like That's not what you do. You, you want to pick the best. You want to interact with the person who right. represents that view the best. Right. And when you're actually, uh, this is just good practice too, when you're having conversation, if, if you want to sit down with someone and you want to have a debate about whether it's creation, whether it's you know John's revelation at the end of the Bible, which is also fairly controversial, whether it's ideas of um, you know, the Baptist view of baptism or paedo-baptism, like you you want to be able to speak the opposing viewpoint so well that if Sam and I disagreed about a particular, let's say Sam's Presbyterian and, and he's paedo-baptist, so he believes in infant baptism and I'm, I'm baptistic in my theology, I want to be able to give the argument for paedo-baptism so well that Sam could go, that's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what I believe. Because that is a number of things, right? It shows that you're being actually thoughtful and intentional and in trying to think through the issues. It shows great respect and love for Sam, who's my brother in Jesus. And I want to actually really understand him before I try and show him how he's wrong. Because, you know, pedo-baptism isn't biblical. Um, I'm kidding. I mean, it isn't, but I'm, I'm kidding in the snarkiness, the snarkiness that I've got with it. Um, but I believe that because of what I believe is paedobaptism baptism is not heresy. And so we disagree. And I think in the same way in creation, I think what's really important as we start to look at these three views, I think you could believe any one of these three views and you're orthodox. You're within Christian orthodoxy. You're not a heretic. And what breaks my heart is that I hear disagreements and the emotion that people are bringing to defend one of these views against the other, so often in my experience in the church, is you you are treating that person like they're a heretic. And I've actually been branded, because I'm inclined towards a, a, a literary framework view, um, I've been told that I, I'm therefore not a Christian uh, in, in a conversation in a church. And you just go... Wait, what? <laughs> you know, you clearly don't believe the Bible, and so therefore you don't believe in Jesus, and so therefore you're not a Christian. And so that's that's not where we're at in this conversation of at least these three views. Um, uh, so I just I wanted to kind of just lay some of that uh, groundwork for for what we're going to turn to. And and part of what I I'm going to do here really is. And so I've um, some of you know this who have been coming to. Uh, these course seminars, the last two semesters, uh, I use as a foundation for my teaching a kind of a base curriculum structure um, from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And I'm departing from that base structure a bit. And I'm, I'm leaning uh, heavily on John Frame's work in this area. I, I really appreciate uh, John, and you're going to see a little bit as we work through some of his material and as I make my own comments on that. But I just wanted you to be aware of that, that I'm really relying heavily on on John here. So you're going to hear him uh, tonight. So any any questions at that at that point as we enter in? I just had a
1: thought that came up. And then yeah. I think that even if you know something that's absolute truth out of the Bible, (coughs) when you're trying to correct somebody else. (coughs) The part, like, what it talks about in Corinthians, without love, we are basically making noise. (laughs) And I think that the love aspect of that would really be getting to know what their viewpoints really are, getting to understand, like what you were saying, what they believe, um, rather than just asserting what you believe into the situation. And that's, you know... I don't know, I mean, Jesus even interacted with people, too, you know? Yeah. So that's the love part of...
0: Yeah, yeah, that is important. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when, when John Frame defines uh, creation, which it, it seems good to, to start with even a definition of creation, what do we mean when we say that? We're studying creation. Uh, creation is an act of God alone, by which, for his own glory, which we saw last week, he does this for his own glory, he brings into existence everything in the universe. Things that had no existence prior to his creative word. Now, when we, when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, um, we see that they teach that God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Now, as I've said already, there has been much controversy in the church, especially in the last hundred years, over the length of those six days, and whether the text intends to teach a literal chronological sequence. Even, you know, we can even have discussions around what do we even mean when we say literal, and what do we mean when we say this is um, that the, the scriptures are being literal here. And when we work through the seminar on how to study the Bible, we talked about that, um, what we mean by literal. But there's even argument over whether the text is teaching a literal chronological sequence. The three major views um, that are most discussed today among evangelicals, and there's there's others certainly, um, are one, uh, the normal day or um 24-hour day view, uh, which says simply, as you would imagine by that name, that the days are around 24 hours each, succeeding one another chronologically. Number two, the day age view, that the narrative gives a chronological history of God's creative acts, but that the days, quote-unquote, are of indefinite duration, most likely periods of many years. Uh, and some of the argumentation around that is just um, that word in the Hebrew text for day that is used elsewhere in the Bible to actually speak of a longer period of time, uh, even though most the the predominant use of that word is what we would think of as a normal 24-hour day. That is true in other places of the Scripture. And then finally, th- number three, the framework view. Uh, that the passage describes God's creative acts topically and that the succession of days is a literary device for presenting those topical categories, not necessarily asserting a chronological sequence. Now, here's something that um, Frame says, that he expressed my heart in words better than I had been able to. So I'm gonna, I, I'm in full agreement and john frame is 84 years old and he is a um a writer of more books than i know and incredibly smart and wise and godly and so i was so encouraged to hear an 84 year old theologian who's been at it as long as he has has been a churchman as long as he has has been teaching and studying his whole life given to systematic theology, right? Like, so we're doing this because his whole life he's been given to systematic theology. Um, Here's what he says. I have no new insight on these issues, nor even any view on the matter that I could argue with confidence. I would direct readers to many other scholars who are producing articles and books on these subjects. Frankly, I tend to be persuaded most by the last person I listened to, which is have you ever have you been there right like oh man you listen to this lecture on this particular theology you're like i am totally that and and then you listen to a woman give a completely different and you're like i totally believe that and they're like what do i believe or i'll be reading sometimes this is so funny um you know, maybe a, a commentary on Romans. Tom Schreiner does this the most frequently. There'll be a particular passage, and you know that there are, like, maybe six options for the way to take it, right? And so he'll be arguing, like, there's this option, and, you know, here's some of the evidence for that, and there's this option, here's some of the evidence, and then he'll, you know, here's this fourth option, here's the evidence, and he'll go on for, like, a number of paragraphs, and you're like, I'm totally in, and I'm, that that is so good. And the last sentence of that argument will be, of course, that's absolutely not the right, you know, Interpretation of this passage, man. What are you doing to me? Why did you argue that so well that I believed it, and now you're like, "Oh, that wasn't the right thing." I feel very stupid right now. <laughs> Proverbs eighteen seventeen says this right, like there's a benefit in many counselors because you a guy comes along, you listen to him until the next person comes along and talks to you. It's actually in the Bible. But here's what Frame argues. Um, he gives the following points. Um, that are important as we seek resolution of of the issues of Genesis one to two. In which particular view would you take? So, are, are you going to take a view that these are literal twenty four hour days? Are you going to take a view that and they're chronological in sequence? Are you going to take a view that in order to understand right? And so, you could. Part of this is if you're a young Earth kind of creationist said, everybody know what that means? You, just, you believe that the age of the earth is fairly young, probably somewhere between maybe six and 10,000 years old. Um, chances are you would take a very literal, this is a 24-hour day, a natural 24-hour day like we would think, because that aligns with that kind of thinking with the way that you think about the age of the earth. Or if you're an old earth kind of person and you think, oh, the earth is actually you know millions of years old, then a day-age view accords well with that kind of thinking because, oh, if, if each day is really, you know could be potentially tens of thousands of years long, that helps make sense of how I think of the age of the earth. Um, framework view is kind of a, a separate piece of that. So he's, he's giving 10 points that I think are really important for our thinking about where you're gonna land on one of those particular views. It gives good surrounding thought and context. So, number one, this discussion concerns the interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. The question is not whether we should abandon the teaching of these chapters to accommodate secular science. The question is, what does the passage actually say? It is an exegetical issue. I am convinced, writes Frame, that the main advocates of all three views are seeking to be true to the teaching of the passage. See, He's granting a graciousness. We're all trying to understand. We've got a framework that we're coming to to try and understand this text. Number two, I am not denying that secular science has influenced this debate. The claims of scientists that the universe has existed for billions of years have certainly motivated theologians to go back to the text in order to see whether these claims are consistent with Scripture. And that has meant rethinking traditional positions. In my view, that is entirely right and proper. We should not assume at the outset that the scientists are wrong. It is also possible that our interpretation of Scripture is wrong, though it is not possible for Scripture itself to be wrong. Note that distinction. We must be humble enough and self-critical enough to re-examine these questions, even under the stimulus of scientific claims with which we may be initially unsympathetic, which I think is, is happens far too often in the church. We create this wrong-headed conflict because, right, I, I understand it because scientists who don't have a Christian, biblically informed worldview in many ways are opposed to the things that we believe and that we hold dear in our faith. And so it feels like, well, I don't want to give any quarter to you whatsoever, anything you have to say in this conversation because of the way that you're coming at other points of the conversation. But let's not do what we don't want them to do to us. This is part of our apologetic mandate to bring every thought captive to Jesus. In that sense, it is right for our exegesis to be influenced by science. Here's the other reason why I think that is so right. Because remember what we said last week, I, at least what I argued to you. Moses' intent isn't to argue to you exactly how creation Um, Like the details of how creation happened. There's a certain how that he's answering. But who created? That's his main intent in in all the conversation we had about writing to his ancient Near Eastern context and all the rest of it. And so it's not wrong um, because there's all kinds of things that science has discovered that Moses would have been shocked, surprised, mystified. And we don't know. <laughs> Number three. But there are also wrong ways of being influenced by science. In reexamining traditional views, we should not be governed by any principles of reasoning inconsistent with Scripture. We should not, for example, assume the absolute uniformity of natural laws. We should not assume the impossibility of miraculous events. Or the absolute validity of currently accepted procedures for determining dates of origin. As if those are unassailable things. right? So I think we, what we want to do is do a really good job of holding those things in tension. You know, what we see and how our thinking is informed in hopefully our, our knowledge that leads to wisdom by the scriptures. And how that's informed by discoveries made by scientists whom God has created and we believe in our worldview is revealing things to and blessing them with the ability to make the scientific discoveries that they're making. Number four, defenders of the framework view have presented much evidence of literary devices in Genesis one and two. For example, day one corresponds with day four, day two with three, Day three with six. um, That God is creating realms and then he's creating the inhabitants of those realms. So that's, the framework view is saying, see what Moses is doing inspired by the Holy Spirit is do, do you see the framework of creation that we're seeing presented to us in the text? That's what they're trying to draw out. They're not trying to put that into the text. They're drawing that out from the text. The presence of a literary structure, however, does not exclude necessarily chronological sequence or normal days. And depending, and there's a lot of, the other thing you have to understand about these three views, if you've done any reading on them, is there's going to be a lot of differentiation between the people who are kind of, say, in that camp. There isn't like the monolithic day age camp in the monolithic normal day camp or the monolithic framework camp. Um, So I I would hold to, generally speaking, a literary framework view, but I think that the days are actually literal days. I'm most inclined to think that they're literal days inside of that framework view, where a lot of framework view holders probably think that's just even a literary device and aren't really sure and don't think actually answering the question is all that important. In my experience, in, in kind of having those conversations, And so I love the openness of what Frame is presenting to say that it doesn't necessarily exclude a chronological sequence for normal days, that you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. Scripture often uses literary devices and narratives that are clearly historical, such as the signs of the Gospel of John, the generations of even Genesis 2, 4, and 5, 1, and 6, 9. The use of a literary device in a historical narrative sometimes renders the narrative incomplete. And the literary intentions of the gospel writers, for example, the the biographies of Jesus, do sometimes lead them to present events in orders other than chronological. When you read carefully, they're, they're not chronologically presented. Why? Because they have a literary aim and intent. They're theologizing. The history is still true. The narrative is actual and literal. But they're presenting it in a way to give you a certain angle in an understanding theologically. Such literary devices and intentions do not exclude either completeness or chronology. For many narratives within these literary structures are chronological. So I'm going to give you an example um, because I have a really good visual example um, of, of, I think, a representation of the literary... Framework Because I think it's probably... Has anyone ever heard of a litera- the literary framework view before in creation? So, a, a f- like, three people it looks like. It, it, I feel like it's not as clearly, not as, as well known. Um, I was exposed to it in seminary. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was give you what I think is a pretty good example. And this is a video from... The Bible Project, which I think just about everybody these days is familiar with. And I tested it this time, so it's actually going to work. Unlike the last time I tried to do this for you. At least, please, Jesus, let it work again. That's oh. All right, and if you're listening to the podcast, if you just go on to BibleProject.com and search for a visual commentary on Genesis 1 and 2, you can watch the video that we all just watched here together this evening. Um, questions on, on what you just saw? Uh, well, I, they're not, they're, you didn't hear them say that anywhere, right. but what I would say is I, I think that's a, um, and I don't know if the Bible Project or John or Tim would agree, I, my interpretation of that is it's a really good representation of a framework. view. You're, you're seeing that framework, right? They're showing you visually. Um, so when I see that, I think, oh, I think, I'm guessing you guys, are taking a framework view, and and they don't they don't address some of the controversy around what I appreciate about it is, um, and part of why I showed it to you uh, certainly is that I think it's a really encouraging interpre- interpretation and representation of the creation event. Um, they're not getting into, you know, are the days literal days? Are they long days? They didn't they didn't even address that right, um, and that's not right or wrong it just they didn't and and i think um i think that's a that's a really helpful seven and a half minutes uh, to i think help you understand um, what god is doing and uh, in particular the aim towards what i think is really beautiful when we're looking at the creation event the last bit where they're talking about sabbath i think is so important um, to see as we've talked about the summary four words of, of the scriptures, right? Um, creation, fall, rescue or restoration, and new creation. And so when you read the book of Hebrews uh, in particular, I think really opens a gateway and, and certainly the images, a lot of the images that we see near the end of John's revelation, uh, I think show us that same intent, what they're interpreting to say that there was always meant to be, we were meant to be in this, in this rest this sabbath rest with god um working and keeping right that it's it's a kind of a kind of rest uh where we're in fellowship and union with god we're fruitful multiplying filling the earth as image bearers of god and so just the beauty of what that was pointing to as the climax and that that's where we're meant to be going to and that in jesus we're we now have access once again to that perfect rest that's going to be ours in a new heavens and a new earth, which will be, right? That's the the intersection one again. That's what Jesus was doing as we see these glimpses of new creation happening around Jesus as he um, exhibits power and miracles and raising from the dead. And um, he says the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is very specific to, to keep saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven um, is at hand. It's present in your midst. It's breaking in right here. So you you see almost like a an existential tear, right? You get to see these images of where it's happening. And one day those realms are going to completely overlap again, where I think the fall has somewhat torn and separated those realms um, to a degree. So uh, any other questions on that? No, know, I'm asking for them, brother. Okay. This is a conversation.
1: So I guess my question is, um, how do we determine um, what we now um, consider the Sabbath day?
0: Elaborate, so please.
1: Or do we um, just create in our relationship with God our own understanding and as long as we have that restful day? I mean does that make sense? I uh-huh think-
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that helps me more look for or understand where you what you're asking. Um, I think by way of answering that question, uh, maybe it would be helpful first. I can give you, what my and our practice has been in our family, in an understanding of the scriptures, um, and so I think that. So, just historically, I think this So, the first question you asked was like a day. What you know, it was Saturday, and and, and now, I think if if you believe there, if you believe there is some continuation to some degree of a Sabbath kind of day, um, most people are going to, you know, Adventists, would still celebrate that on Saturday Uh, but most people are going to celebrate that on Sunday because the shift there right was the resurrection of Jesus and so we're marking this day now as this as this deliverance event previously it was the deliverance event of of God delivering the children of Israel from Egypt Um, that was instituted on Saturday in Judaism and so now it's Sunday would be that's why we right why do we get together on Sunday generally speaking Big churches sometimes have Saturday evening services. But generally speaking, most of our gatherings in Christianity happen on a Sunday. It's because of that cataclysmic change in history. Um, I believe, I, I would not call myself a strict Sabbatarian. So I, I think that there are some of the, uh, the laws in the Old Covenant that are around Sabbath that I don't think... Uh, fully hold. I do think that just like my view of the Ten Commandments um, what's most important about the Ten Commandments is they're displaying the character of God and who he is their they're ethical, moral comman- Their commands, certainly but they're, they're helping his people understand this is how you become holy like as, as I am holy and then of course all the other laws that are, are given in addition to the Ten. Uh, so I think that there is, an, just like I do with so many of the things that we read in the Old Covenant are instructive, are an ongoing in, instructively for, say, ethical behavior or how I live my life. I think that there are very sound, there's a sound principle in the Sabbath um, that we have. I'm trying to remember how many years it's been, brother. I, I'm not going to be able to remember, but maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of, of Twenty years, I think it was in my post seminary training when I was kind of thinking of some of these issues on the continuity of the Old Testament in the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And so our practice has been because I'm a pastor. Um, uh, you know that this isn't any uh, slight on I love Sunday; it's my favorite day of the week, but it's not a rest day. <laughs> it's a work. It's a work day for me. Um, and so our practice has been, uh, usually what happens is um, uh, around Friday afternoon, uh, we do a number of chores. We've all had chores in our house that, um, so I dust, I take out the garbage, um, I vacuum sometimes, um, and uh, we try and get those things done. What's that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I said, are you listening to I thought for a second, I know, I thought she's, I thought for a second you were like, does he really do that? <laughs> is he lying, Susan? <laughs> we need a witness, testify. Um, and again, there isn't there there hasn't been perfection, so don't, you know, in, in our household. But generally, that's what we're trying to do, because we're trying to, what we're trying to do is create um, by Friday evening, coming together as a family around five thirty, six 6 o'clock it's a little bit different since we've come to salida we're still working on some real firm rhythms we've got some fellowship stuff that happens on friday with some other people but um and then generally it was like kind of a six o'clock friday to six o'clock saturday now it's till bedtime so it's a little bit more than 24 hours uh, generally speaking uh and and again an under a biblical understanding of rest and in a sabbath rest and so that doesn't mean I can remember when we first introduced this to our children uh, they, they, they were like, "Oh great so now I don't get to be with my friends and I just got to sit in the house and I got to read the Bible and uh, I never get to go anywhere and this is awful. I hate the Bible and Sabbath and why are you making me? I don't want to be a Christian I, you know it, and it's like, no, no that's not what it means at all like this is a gift to us and of course, yes. Your friends can come over, and yes, we're going to have fun, and we're going to do delightful things. And we're going to play games, and, and you could go to your friend's house on a Sabbath day. That's not generally we want to try and be together as much as we can, um, and it's doing what's restful for you, right? Rest is a is a subjective thing, so you know if a guy's a professional fisherman, for example, um, that's not going to maybe feel restful. On a on a on a Sabbath day, but for me, that might feel very restful as, as a non-professional fisherman, and it wouldn't anyway because I don't like fishing, so that's not restful for me. What's really restful for me on a Saturday is going on usually about a three-hour a three-hour hike, and and having extended time alone and talking to God because I think it should be Sabbath rest shouldn't be entertainment-driven. Um, it, it, it should be fun and restful and restorative because that's what sabbath is all about um and it should be that not to the exclusion of intentional spiritual pursuit uh pursuit of god and right now that's all of life right, right. but i think the whole point and this is why i think there's wisdom in sabbath um i, I have two things uh, many of you know uh, grant kai hi you were here when he presented he made he made my pulpit And he presented that pulpit. He's made me two big wooden, uh, like these trees, and he made kind of a a half disc, and it was a tree that had a crack in it. and And when you see the rings in a tree, what does that represent about the tree? It it, it represents the years of the life or time, right? And there was this massive crack. And so he made these for each uh, my study at home and my study at the church campus because and he called it Sabbath because Sabbath is a break in time, wow. right? That's what, what we're doing is, is we're having this break in time to recenter in every way, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, like to recenter so that now I'm going, because think of a Jew, the Jewish concept, conception of time. So there's evening and there was morning. Did you notice that in the Bible? What do we say? Day we say morning and morning to evening. The Jewish conception of time is from the evening to the to the morning, the following morning. So it's it starts with rest. Each day period is I'm operating out of rest. I'm not headed towards rest. I like that, and and I do too. It and and I'm I'm not because I live in a culture that isn't that way. But but psychologically when you think about that, so often in a you know in a new year I'm trying to f- be intentional about that again. Like that's why it's important to get to bed on time. Because I want to be fueled physically, and that's I'm reading certain things usually before I go to bed, because I, I want I want to set a trajectory for the next day in, in a good way. Now Sabbath becomes that opportunity with an extended time. So I'm infusing the rest of the entire week with that kind of thought process so that I'm, I'm seeking to grow closer. to. I want, I want, G, I want my life to be Jesus-saturated, yeah. right? I, I think a problem so often is we think pursuing God is, I've read my Bible this morning, I prayed, and now I'm going to work. And I'm going to go do this. And I'm going to go, instead of, it's, I want him everywhere. I'm, I'm wanting to pull him into every, isn't this why Paul said pray without ceasing? Like I, I, want, I want to be saturated always. I want him never far from my thoughts. I, I would like it if my brain in those spots, right, you know this during the day, your mind will go somewhere. Where does it first go? Always. That, that's gonna tell you something about you. And I'm, I wanna train my mind to first go him um, or to first go to that nugget that I grabbed this morning in my scripture reading you are you are building you're taking living stones and you're building a spiritual house so that's what I've been taking in my mind hasn't gone there enough today but it's so early in the morning read that in my liturgy and am struck in my own doubts about, God, what are you up to in my life? And him speaking, what I'm up to is, is I'm building something in you. And I'm taking you and I'm building you into something for my glory. And so this confidence that I can head into my day knowing he's at work. He's at work in my life. He's at work in my church family. He's at work in this world. Like, so I hope my brain is frequently going back to that. The other text I read was in Matthew this morning, early this morning. Don't let your prayers be like be like babbling for God knows what you need before you talk. Yeah. So all throughout the day as I've been praying today, I've been, I've been thinking that right that can reset it resets your expectation of prayer. How many of you go into prayer thinking I I got to pray this way and I got to I got to like Spend this much time at it, and there's these lists that I have to do because, because, because what? But he knows what you need before you even talk. So don't, like what I felt this morning in a new way was, I'm taking all of that burden off of you. It's not about your words. It's not about your words. I know what you need. So don't get all hung up on that. And for me, how that landed on me this morning when I went out on my prayer walk was, okay, I just want to spend time with you. Here I am. I just want to spend time with you. I'm looking up at those mountains and okay, I'm gonna praise you for a little bit about that. And I see that sun that's rising over when I look back this way and, um, and have all this anxiety, and, but you know what I need today. You know what I need. Okay, so that was a very long-winded answer to your question. Um, but it's those, it's those things that I think are why I try and we try and imperfectly, right, sweetie? Imperfectly. I mean, we just we're we're just muddling along, <laughs> trying to trying to do something. We we just actually talked, um, I think it was just last week about um, instead of me always on a hike, like what we have limited time with Nehemiah. Um, he's headed out of the house. And so now we're, we're thinking about a weekly Sabbath family adventure. And what could some Sabbath adventures look like? Because two Sabbaths ago, we did that. We, we had an adventure. And and I had so much fun. And we we're like, oh, hmm, maybe, I, maybe there needs to be an adjustment here. And you know, you're always learning as a dad and husband and spouse and human intentionality. Um, and so, yeah, it, that's, that's been our understanding and practice of Sabbath. And I, you know, and we could have all kinds of, there's all kinds of texts that we could talk about biblically on Sabbath. And, um, I don't, you know, I'll just say, the last thing I'll say is I I don't, my current understanding of, of the Pauline texts around um, is it what is it in Colossians 2 or 3 um, you know we, we don't hold one day more valuable than the other we don't so I, I think my understanding of the context of, of Paul's writing there is that I think he is admonishing people who are ab- are being abusive in their requirements of others. And I think he's saying, a la Romans 14 and 15, is that there's charity allowable in God's, in God's economy and in God's people. And some people are gonna eat meat and some people aren't. Some people are gonna hold this day a bit differently than you and some aren't, and that's okay. And we're not gonna kind of lord that over them back and forth. That there's, the fences are a little wider. That we all get to write, like I think theologically we have to we have to understand where are the fence lines drawn, and then to what degree are we jumping around like little calves in the pasture? What's the common theological pasture that we're all? Where are we drawing the fence lines? Right, right. You know, and some people will draw them at Sabbath. Some people will draw them at other things. Um, and you don't have to do Sabbath. I think you're missing out. If you don't have a Sabbath, but I love you and we're all, we're all going to be in new heavens and new earth. Um, an eternal Sabbath. and we're going to be in an eternal Sabbath. Let me, I'm going to jump to, it's almost seven o'clock. I'm going to, I would like to give you uh, a few more from frame here. Um, so I'm gonna to go to his number eight. He says a number of things about Framework View that they're they're a little thick. Um, you know one of the one of the things that I will say, well, okay, just I'll go number eight. There, there are reasons for taking the days as normal days. So he, he wants to, so now now we're talking the normal day view, uh, right? the twenty four hour day view. Uh, first, the word day, does not always refer to a 24-hour period, but it does most often, especially when, especially when accompanied by numerals. The phrase evening and morning also suggests a 24-hour period. See Exodus 18, 13, 27, 21. Number two, in the Sabbath commandment, we are told to work six days and rest one in imitation of God's creative activity. But if the days are not normal days, it's not clear what we should imitate. Number three. Further, the plural days used in Exodus 20.11 is never used figuratively, which would be like, to think of it as ages, some would argue that that's a, a somewhat figurative use of, of um, yom, is the, is the Hebrew word. It's never used figuratively elsewhere. Number nine. And and here, again, right, so within orthodoxy, this is the balance that I love. Um, There are reasons for taking the days as normal days. On the other hand, (laughs) um, we should not be persuaded that the figurative views should be considered heresy. And here would be some reasons for why you shouldn't do that. Number one, although the literal view seems the most natural way to take Genesis 1, it does not seem to me that the argument is sufficiently strong as to absolutely exclude a figurative view. Number two, there have long been differences among Christians on this matter, and various views have been accepted in the church. Only recently has there been a movement to make the literal view a test of orthodoxy. And I will give warning, I won't name names, but there are ministries and very popular evangelical speakers at conferences who I think do that. And I think it does not serve the church. I don't think it serves the church internally. And I do not think it serves the witness of the church in the wider world. Uh, so it, it it really breaks my heart. Number three, it is not clear to me that any other doctrines rest logically on a literal view of the days of Genesis, right? And number three follows from number two. There's so many people that that's, that's their biggest and most important domino. Right. I have a literal 24-hour view. And if you don't believe that, that thing comes crashing down. And therefore, you, no. everything else in the Bible, in their view, is flowing from that. And if you're right. going to remove, it's like Jenga. Maybe that's the better. Mm-hmm. You, that's their foundation. And you pull that piece out and everything else crumbles. That's what they say you're then doing. And you can't, all the other doctrines hang on a 24-hour literal view. And I just don't think that that's wise. A figurative view does not imperil our confession of biblical inerrancy or the historicity of Genesis or the historicity of Adam or Eve. The figurative views under discussion claim to be derived precisely from the text. That's what they're arguing. A figurative view of the days does not as such warrant it doesn't demand that those people are being evolutionary in their view of man's ancestry, nor does it compromise the literal historicity of the fall of Adam and Eve, or any of the truths concerning our new creation in the Messiah. Normally, we do not make literal exegesis a text of orthodoxy. I do not see why the days of Genesis should be an exception. Number 10, in all this discussion, we should remind ourselves that God, speaking through Moses in Genesis 1 and 2, has a purpose, namely, to display his glory in his creative work and to provide background for the narrative of the fall. It is certainly not the primary purpose of the narrative to tell us precisely how God made the world, when he did it, how long it took, how all of this relates to the theories of modern science. It may be that the narrative is such that it answers some of these questions on the way to achieving its primary purpose. Certainly, we must assume that its statements are consistent with what really happened with the true cosmogony, but there may not be sufficient data in the passage to determine a detailed cosmogony in the language of modern science. We should not demand that God give us more than he has given. That Moses is not a 2024 scientist, in other words. And finally, number 11, as we have seen divine creation... Both original and subsequent. Um, and so that's Frame's terminology for um, an understanding. So this question came up um, last time, uh, which would be uh, another view would be gap theory. Is there is there a creative event that's happening in Genesis 1 1? And then, depending on kind of which gap theorist you are, as much as I understand that position, um, there might be gaps between one one and one two and one two and one three. Um, generally, in my reading, it's an understanding of a gap between one one and one three. So there's a kind of an initial creative event, right? Because it says God made the heavens and the earth, and 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 then there's these an undetermined, you know, potentially billions of years that happen. Like it, it operates in that state, and then billions of years that happened between there which then right can also connect to an old earth kind of understanding of the age of the earth potentially that would support that view and and then there's all this other creation that happens after that I still think there's I don't think the text warrants that view um, I don't see anywhere in the subsequent subsequently in the scriptures that they're understanding or pointing back to a multiple creative event because I think that's that view seems to me to demand a two-creation event, um, but how, how other theologians frame among them would talk about original and subsequent creation, so that would be the explanation of Genesis 1-1 and then following. So God creates the heavens and the earth, still ex nihilo. He, he's creating, like you saw, so this is where for helpful for me, a literary frame review. He's creating realms and now the subsequent so now he's created matter he's created things um, you know it's not just I think humans are unique in that it seems that he's intimately involved in forming them out of the ground but all the other creatures also were formed right they came out of you saw that visually and popping up out of, the, out of the ground all over um, so he's using so that's original and subsequent creation. You'll hear that if you do further reading on this, likely. So as we have seen, divine creation, both original and subsequent, is unique. It is analogous to human production of things, but it is an absolute or ultimate productivity, such as is impossible for human beings. Uh, This point is even more obvious if we assume that God creates things in a mature state. um, Which would be my which would be my argument for understanding. So there's a difference between an old earth and a mature earth. So I'm, I'm not an old earth person because like that would demand a, um, billions of years day age theory, probably kind of approach to the creation event. I think God created things in a mature state. Um, Adam and Eve among them. Mm -hmm. He didn't create an infant. Um, and so I, I think there's no reason to assume that he couldn't create all kinds of maturity, including, right. I mean, someone asked me today about dinosaurs. You know, what do I think about dinosaurs? And so yeah, anyway, um, that's a whole other conversation.
1: <laughs>
0: the analogy is presented in Genesis 1 suggests a temporal analogy as well. That is, human production takes various periods of time, so God's productive work in creation also took time. But I think it's unwise to dogmatize on just how far to take that analogy. That is, how precisely to take the correspondence between God's workdays and ours. See, no reason to suppose that the creation week was longer than a normal week, but also no reason to require that, that view as a test of orthodoxy. Um, even, even the idea of, you know, you could look at, if you start to get into the details of it, and you know, he creates plants. And then, you know, how much water is available for the plants? And if it's a day, then how do they have time enough to grow to produce fruit for them to eat when Adam and Eve were created? Mm-hmm. And and I just, I think that's where we, we say earlier, right? Like, we don't want to, because we know right now science tells us photosynthesis. And we know how long it takes things to grow. And we know it's necessary for all of that. But that's true. And God can create an event where a plant miraculously grows in two seconds for what it would have taken 100 years. <laughs> that, those uh, redwoods in California, you know. Um, he could have made that redwood sprout up and he could have made it just mature or he could have made it grow to that degree in 30 seconds if he wanted to, because water he's water God. Now, I, yeah,
1: water and wine, I think of that, yeah. water yeah. yeah.
0: Right, right. Jesus, like we talked about last time, Jesus accelerated that. He still turns water into wine, we know, because water goes into the ground and vines grow and grapes get formed and they get turned into wine after they ferment. So he's still turning water into wine. Um, he's still in, right, because that's, that's the interesting thing. Okay, for just a second, it was amazing this week to turn my attention to Romans eleven thirty three to 36 and to see creation. For from him, and through him and to him are what? All, all things. things. So what is that saying? He's in charge. God is the originator and source. God is the sustainer and upholder. And God is the goal and the end of all creation. <gasps> Isn't that fantastic? That is just so, oh, it is so amazing. And on Sunday, I'm going to show you how Paul operates in triplets throughout the entire text of 33 to 36. And that's one of the triplets. Three prepositional phrases that, boy, you don't think prepositions are important? (laughs) From through to. Incredibly important. Three prepositions that tell you something absolutely magnificent about our God and created in Paul. Worship. Because theology should lead to doxology. Remember when we said that last semester? Mm-hmm. And if theology doesn't lead to doxology, you are not doing theology. You are not doing theology. And if your doxology isn't very good, it's probably because your theology is really weak. Right. <laughs> Those are incredibly tied. We've said this, I've said that on Sunday morning. I'm I'm learning more as we go through Romans. I so long in we just met a couple weeks ago as worship leaders. Um, for a half a day and talked about our liturgy and and what do we want God to do in our liturgy on Sunday mornings and our heart, for all of us the deep longing of our hearts is we want deeper more significant worship at grace and um, it's why we preach the way that we do (laughs) so that you'll be able that you'll be able to worship (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm not going to require it for orthodoxy, but I'm not going to argue that you're wrong. <laughs> um, so we're going we're to wrap up there. There's, there's, you can see on your handouts that there's lots of stuff we, we could talk about, right, because there's all kinds of opposing views. There's pantheism, deism, there's you know, God's relationship to creation. There's so much that we could talk about there, but we're not going to do that because I want to I be able to get a number of topics we spent two weeks on creation. That's all we're going to give it. So we're moving on to, um, what is it next week? Sin, I think? What is it? Ooh, providence. That's right. Oh, providence. This is going to be good. And I think we're two weeks in providence, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, hmm. it's going to be good. Um, who would like to close us in prayer?